0: The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net.
1: Morning Church, how we doing? Hey, grab your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 19. I'm doing good. Whoever said that over there, I'm doing well. Um, Luke chapter 19 is where we're going to be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, just stick a hand up and wave it around. We'll make sure that you get one so you can track along with us. Make sure I'm not lying to you. A couple of announcements while you're doing that. Uh, next week there's going to be a huddle orientation huddle training class so if you would like to join one of our gospel communities which we highly recommend um, there's going to be a class during this service next week that you can attend so child care is already taken care of all that stuff you just check them into the kids wing and then come join us in that class that's next week but i think you have to sign up today so stop by the connect desk and make sure that happens Um, Also, women's Bible studies are kicking back off again, Tuesday morning Bible study, Tuesday evening Bible study. There's information there in the back. And uh, one that you may have saw the slide when you came in, uh, not next week, when is it? Two weeks? January 20th, one service on January 20th at 10.30 a.m. So come time is kind of the same for you guys, but uh, early service, we had to tell them to like plan ahead. So that'll be one big service all together on January 20th. Luke chapter 19 is where we are this morning. Um, Do you guys enjoy the Advent series that we got to go through there? You learn a few things? I did. I enjoyed it. Um, I thought it was a great time. This is actually really, this text right here is actually a a great kind of tie back into that as we jump back into our Luke series. Um, we, we, as you guys know, we've been for a while going through the book of Luke. We will now push through and finish it. We should finish the book of Luke around May 5th. And the way everything's laid out right now, we will hit the actual resurrection story on Easter Sunday. So go figure. That works out pretty well, right? So that's what we'll do. So looking forward to that. But for right now, we're going to dive into this one. And um, this is a tough one. Let me start out by by telling you a quick, quick story. Tax season is already coming up, right? Everybody say boo. So, uh tax season's coming up. This is the time of year where we as a church start compiling a whole bunch of stuff. um, For those who are covenant members here, you'll get a financial report that shows how we spent your money last year. Um, For the others, uh, we'll be putting together stuff so that everyone who's ever given, you'll get a donor statement so you can do your uh, tax exempt, uh, you know, donations and tax write-offs and all that kind of stuff. We're kind of working on all that kind of stuff, and it hit me recently um, something that made me go, "Uh uh-oh, and it's this. Last year, When I met with the guy who prepares my taxes, and we we go to a tax preparer because our taxes are just seriously weird. Uh, Pastor taxes are weird, and I'm just not smart enough to do it. So we hire someone else to actually do our taxes every year. And last year, our tax guy told me, Hey, listen, Jeff, you need to get a hold of me, set a reminder in your phone, and get a hold of me in like June or July. Because some stuff has changed, not just in the tax law, but also for you guys as well. Uh, my wife had taken on a part-time job, so now we have new income coming in that we didn't have before and all this stuff. And he's like, so you need to make sure, set a reminder, come see me in June or July, and let's look at where you are and make sure that you're okay so that by the time the end of the year comes around, you don't end up in a place where maybe, worst case scenario, you end up owing a whole bunch of money. And I'm like, on it. Set the reminder. Set the reminder. Boom. Reminder went off in June. Called him. Never heard back. Never did anything different after that point. So now I'm like, oh, that's right. And taxes end when? December 31st. You're done. So now I'm at this point where I'm like, okay, what's that meeting going to be like? How confidently will I walk into my tax preparer's office? What will the news be like? Might be good might be okay, might be a break even, which I don't like. I like the forced savings account, like plan towards a return, don't you guys, some of you? No? Some of you are more financially responsible than me, and you're like, no, you're wasting money, and you're letting the government earn money on your interest. I would spend it if I had it, so it works for me, but but maybe I come in, and I get really bad news, but here's the reality. No matter what, I had opportunity to stop, take account, look at where I'm at, and adjust so that on that day I could walk into his office with confidence and no fear and trembling. And I didn't do it. So I don't know what I'm going to deal with now. That's giving away the end of the sermon. Let's go ahead and take a look at Luke chapter 19. Today we're in Luke chapter 19, Jesus Christ is on his way to Jerusalem. And he is going to Jerusalem during the Passover season, but not just to honor Passover. He's going to be the Passover sacrifice. Jesus Christ is going to Jerusalem to die. And this isn't really a mystery. He's been telling his followers all along, this is what we're doing. We're going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. In fact, you could probably turn probably just one page to the left And in chapter 18, verse 31, Jesus said, taking the 12, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that's written about the son of man by the prophets will be accomplished for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day he will rise. But then notice verse 34, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. They did not grasp what he said. They don't don't get it. Like he's been saying, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to die when I get there. When I get to Jerusalem, I'm going to be killed. And they're like, got it. You're going to kill it in Jerusalem. We're with you. This is going to be awesome. We'll just go to Jerusalem and just kill it. Let's do it, Jesus. No, 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 no. I'm going to die. Yeah, I'm dying to get to Jerusalem too, Jesus. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Like they're just not understanding what's going on. And he knows this. So now he comes to a place called Jericho, and in Jericho, he runs into a man, Zacchaeus, a wee little man was he, and as you guys saw in our last study in Luke back in November, the story of Zacchaeus happened. Zacchaeus was like the worst of the worst of the worst of the worst, like of all the people you would think that Jesus would go and stay at his house, Zacchaeus is dead last on that list. And that's the guy who Jesus goes after. That's the guy Jesus pursues. That's the guy that he goes to. And everybody's like, what are you doing there? And the religious leaders especially. If he had any idea who he's with, what is he doing with this sinner? And Jesus gives us this beautiful mission statement in verse 10 where he says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And there's this really cool thing that happens. And you got to think that the people there are really excited. Because first of all, if you remember correctly, Zacchaeus, who had been ripping people off left and right for a really long time as a tax collector, remember when he gets saved, what is it he says? I'm going to pay back the people that I've robbed. Over, I'm going to give them fourfold what they took from me. I'm going to set everything right. And so if you're one of those in the room and you know he ripped you off, you're like, I like this Jesus guy. This is very profitable for me. I'm down with this. Anybody else around that I should have him talk to while I'm here? I'm liking this. I'm going to get some money today. Happy day, right? And then the Pharisees who are pointing fingers at Jesus and all upset with him, he's shunning them and pushing them to the side and showing them that, hey, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And they're part of a culture who has been told over and over and over by the religious elite, you're not good enough. You're not good enough. You're not good enough. And now they're seeing all this stuff happen and they're getting pretty excited about it. And what they think is about to happen is now Jesus is finally going to Jerusalem. He's finally going to the capital city. And if he's done this along the way and called people out along the way, oh, when we get to Jerusalem, it's all finally going to come to fruition. He's going to kick out those religious leaders. He's going to reestablish it the way it's supposed to be. He's going to kick Rome out of the way. Our Messiah has come. This new kingdom is finally going to be established. And they're getting pretty pumped up about it. And they don't remember the reality of what Jesus is coming to do. He's coming to die. And so he's like, okay i got to deal with this. Verse 11 of chapter 19 says, As they heard these things. What things? That's the Zacchaeus stuff. So it's, this, is, this story is exactly connected to that. Same room. So he goes, As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So here's what he's doing. He's like, Okay, guys, Listen. You, you don't understand exactly what's going on and, and you really need to. So I'm going to tell you a story so you can understand better what's going on because this is really important. You, you've got to understand this. Church, you really need to hear this. And Heritage, let me just tell you, like, so do I. Like, this is not the kind of message that I enjoy giving at all. Um, and it would be really easy for, for it to come across as a guilt trip over everyone. So let me just state for the record right now, this is a message I need to sit and hear more than I even need to give. Because I'm with you in this. This is for all of us. Say it's for me. One, two, three. It's for me. This is for all of us. This is really important. We have got to hear this. There's something that happened in the 80s and in the 90s in the evangelical world, especially in the United States. Churches moved into this new phenomenon where instead of little neighborhood churches and stuff like it had always been in America, we had the invention of the megachurch. Like these big churches popped up and came out of nowhere, and pastors and leaders and church leaders and stuff at the time, nobody knew what to do with them. Like there'd never been churches like this, and nobody knew what to do with all this kind of stuff. And one of the things that the churches did in the 80s and 90s is they went to the business world to get advice and ideas on how to navigate this new reality where churches of thousands of people were coming. Now, that's not necessarily bad. Like, it's a good idea to go to the business world and and talk to people who are really smart in how to manage money or manage people or organizational structures. There's tons of wisdom that we can gain from people in that sort of world. Be they Christian or not, there's a lot of things we can learn. It's a bad idea when you go to the business world to learn how you're going to deal with things such as salvation. That's a whole different deal. And here's what a lot of them ended up doing: it, it birthed something called the seeker-sensitive movement, or easy believeism, you know, some of those kinds of phrases. And what it was was this. All these people are coming. We're on the right track. We're doing some really good stuff and we want to keep them coming. So there's some things we should talk about and be encouraging and be hopeful for people and all this kind of stuff, but we probably shouldn't say things that offend them. We probably shouldn't say things that might hurt them, that might cause them to stop coming. We've got this awesome thing coming and we want to protect it and grow it and they're looking at it as a business. Like, How do we attract more customers rather than understanding the reality of A lot of the work that we're supposed to do as a church is painful. I mean, even if you just follow Jesus' ministry, it almost seems like every time the crowds got big, like on purpose, he would say something that was really difficult and people would leave. And so the church started doing a lot of that. And along the way, it kind of became somewhat the norm for a lot of pastors and leaders who, when they teach sermons that challenge people to think about where they are, even thinking about their salvation, that became sort of a bad thing. Like, I, I've literally had people come to me like, hey, it is not okay that you, you, that you call people to question their salvation. Why would you do such a thing? You should never, ever do that. And the problem with that, it's, first of all, let me just say, it's is not fun. It's not something anyone I, that I know takes pleasure in doing on any level whatsoever. It's not fun. Um, but, but the idea of, like, you should never do that, the, the problem with that is the Bible. Because in the Bible, Guys like Paul do that all the time. All the time. I mean, think about all the letters of the New Testament that, that Paul and Peter and these guys write. They're always writing to churches and saying, Guys, think. Think about who you are. Think about what Christ has done. Think about how that should affect you. Think about the fact that Jesus is coming again. Think about this stuff. And some are harsher than others. Like you get to Corinthians, and Paul's almost just like, I am so embarrassed. <laughs> it's just a train wreck, like, what are you people thinking? Galatians, he doesn't even go into the good news first, he starts out, dear Galatians, what are you thinking? Like, he just dives into them. There's one possible exception, that's the church at Philippi. Church at Philippi, Paul adored them. Like, you could probably say, That if Paul was to settle down anywhere, choose some place that maybe I just want to settle down and not do all this church planning stuff everywhere. I just want want to hang out with you guys. Like I love you guys. I'm so proud of you guys. I love this church. And yet, even to that church, even to the church that didn't seem to have a whole lot of things that they needed to work out. Look what he says in Philippians 2 verse 12. Therefore, my beloved brethren... As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He makes no qualms about even causing the people of a church that he adores, such as Philippi, to even be a little bit afraid as they think through the reality of the things that are going on around them, the reality of their savior, the reality of their lives and all of that kind of stuff. So this morning, if you're killing it, if you're like, man, I sat down and I tried to make some New Year's resolutions and nothing even came to me. I'm just, I had nothing to write. My, my resolution is just keep on going. Like if that's you, praise God. You're teaching next week, just so you know, and I'm signing up for counseling with you. If that's you, That's fine for the rest of us, <laughs> we kind of need this stuff. And, and instead of maybe, if, if you, and let, me, let me say this, the goal is not guilt. Condemnation does not come from the Lord. The goal is not guilt. But conviction can be equally as difficult at times, but a very good thing. And, and maybe, Instead of going, I can't believe he would say those things. Or, I who would? Maybe it would be better for us to remember that it is a grace that a parent tell a child, you're playing too close to the fire, you're playing too close to the street. Like that's grace for the well-being and for the future of the child. And the scriptures do this with us all the time. Take account. Think about it. Stop. Make sure. And if you're fine, praise God. If you're not, this is a grace from God that you are here this morning hearing this. This is the Spirit of God calling you to good things. Amen, church? That's what we're doing here. So Jesus here is saying, you don't understand, and you really, really need to. And what follows from this is an allegorical teaching of Jesus. It's a parable. He's telling a story, but it's not just like a moral teaching. I'm going to tell you a story, and the moral of this is something, but the story doesn't really represent anything real. I'm just trying to get a lesson across to you. That's not what's happening here. This is, I'm telling you a story because I want you to see an actual reality that exists. I'm using a a fake story to help you understand something very, very real. Does that make sense? So that's what he's doing here with this. And in this story, I'm going to give away a little bit of it to you right now. In this story, there's a few different characters. The nobleman or the king in the story is who? That's Jesus. That's pretty easy. Um, Some of you were scared to answer, but let's try that again. It's who? Jesus. Jesus. Okay. The nobleman and the king is Jesus in the story. But other than that, there are servants, there are citizens, and and then there's the other. You'll see a couple of that. Now, those characters are us somewhere in there. Which one you are is kind of the point of the parable. The idea of going, okay, which one's me? And maybe which one should I be? And what do I do about that, knowing the reality of what Jesus is trying to teach us here? Does that make sense? So, he says in verse 12, he said, therefore, he begins his story, a nobleman went to a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas, and he said to them, engage in business until I come. Okay, now a mina, it's a, it's a unit of money there. It's, it's, it's argued exactly how much that is. Um, arguments are anywhere from about four or five months salary, all the way up to even ten months worth of salary. Either way, significant chunk of change, right? I mean, depending on what you make, I don't know, but five months, if somebody wanted to cut me a five-month check, I'd be totally fine with that anytime. It's a significant amount of money that we're talking about here. And he leaves it to his servants, to, to people whose job, whose calling, whose role it is to serve the king. He leaves it to them and he says, engage in business. Now, I don't know too many people that engage in business for the purpose of not making an increase, Right? So we can just automatically assume, and then based on the way rewards are going to play out later, the idea is, listen, I want you to take this, I want you to steward it, I want you to do something with it for the sake of and the expansion of my kingdom, and when I get back, I'm going to check on you. That's what's happening here. This is what it's talking about. Now, the very fact that he's saying that the king went off to a far-off country, is it should tell the people of Israel, even in that very moment right there, that the kingdom is not going to come in its fullness immediately. He's going far away, and he'll be back, but there's going to be this in-between time, okay? So this is what he's saying. I'm going far away, giving you this stuff, take care of it, invest it, I'll be back. Verse 14, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. So these are not, this is different than servants, okay? These are people that live in that kingdom They're not dedicated to serving him or following him necessarily. They're just residents that are there. And they've made the decision. They're pointing the finger and they're saying, that's not my king. I will not have this man rule and reign over us. This guy has nothing to do with it. Now, Israel understands this message really well. Because something that had happened historically not long before that, there's a king here named Herod that rules over the area of Israel there on behalf of Rome. And Herod was a really bad dude. And he actually killed at one point thousands of Jewish people. And so the people of Israel got together and they sent a delegation up to Rome to complain about the king that was in charge there. And the message they sent was, we will not have this man rule over us. So when Jesus says, we will not have that the, the, these citizens reject the king and say, we will not have this man rule over us. They know what they're talking about. This is an actual rejection of the king. He's not my king. And the group outright rejects him. Now we'll deal with them in just a minute. Let's keep moving on. Verse 15. And when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered that these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. So the king comes back. Have all my servants come? Bring me account. I want to know what you did with the task that I left you while I was gone. So something really important to take away right away is this: the people of Israel are waiting for a coming kingdom. Right? Is the kingdom now? Is the kingdom? Is the kingdom coming soon? Is the kingdom coming soon? But you read this story. You know what you realize? Kingdom was there all along. Whether the king was there with them in that moment or not didn't change the fact that they were still responsible to the king. The king still ruled. The king still reigned over that land. They were still accountable to the task, whether he was standing right in front of them or not. Whether that kingdom was in its fullness, you might say, or not. There is a literal, actual kingdom with a literal king who is literally ruling, even at that time, even when they don't see him. They're constantly like, well, when the kingdom gets here, and he's like, it's here. And the king's here. And you have responsibilities to the king now. The kingdom is here. In verse 16, so they're coming up and they're giving account. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. We don't know what this guy did. We don't know how he invested it. We don't know what he did. Um, but he did well. Right, ten ten, tenfold return. That's pretty not not bad. You'd invest in that, and and in that, and there's some there's actually some hope here. This reward comes in. So if you grew up with like the uh, Tom and Jerry Christianity, where you just think that once you die, you just put on a white gown and play a harp and float on a cloud and sing songs forever and ever and ever for a million years, we just sing worship songs, and then they go, "We're just getting started." Sing it again, and you're just like, "Uh, that's not true." There's life. There's a new heaven and a new earth. There's kingdoms. There's cities. There's jobs. I know that that doesn't get some of you excited. But there's work without toil. There's job without frustration. There's service of a true king without sin, without the frustrations and things. There, it, it's something that will be a joy to you to do. But what was encouraging to me at least is like, hey, there's going to be like life, And and part of this guy's reward is he's going to be in charge of 10 cities. That seems like a good gig. That's like mayor of 10 cities or whatever you want to call it. That's not a bad gig, right? So that's his reward. He gets 10 cities. The next guy comes, verse 18. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. No comparison, no five. Homeboy over here got 10. What's what'd you do wrong? Like what's going on? Do you lazy? Were you slow? No, just well done. And you're going to be in charge of five. Verse 20, and then another came. Here's a little uh, tip for you in your Bible reading. It's never, ever in the Bible a good thing to be the other. Just so you know. When you're reading through the Bible and it talks about this guy and this guy and this guy, and it says, and then the other, you never want to be the other. Okay, so in the Bible. So here it is. Then another came. And he said, Lord, here is your mina which I kept laid away in a handkerchief for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man you take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow but there's an immediate problem that I hope jumps off the pages to you guys right there think about what he says you're a mean harsh man and you reap what you did not sow you take what wasn't yours you notice what he's how his thought process is right there he's acting like the mina was his like he had something from the very beginning that was actually his and that the king's going, I want you to take your money and make money and then give me the money that you had. That is not what happened at all. He was given something by the king that he did not have otherwise. It's the king's mina. It's not an issue of you reap what you did not sow. He's, he's reaping exactly. That's exactly the, the point of it. He's saying, no, you just take stuff that's not yours and you reap things that will not sow. Now, what we're about to see is an argument back that I, that I want to make clear. This is not the king agreeing with that statement. Okay, it's going to end in a question mark. What he's going to do is use the argument of this man against him. So if you're one of those, much like me, that have been told through your life, uh, why, whenever we get in arguments, you always take everything and you flip it right back on me. Hey, that's just being like Jesus, just so you know. I'm joking, it's so not like Jesus at all. But, but th- he's just saying, okay, okay, okay. So you didn't invest it because you think that I'm mean, and you think that I take things that aren't mine, and that I'm a fierce man. He goes, okay, then let's consider that argument. And look what he says, verse 22. I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. This is what he's saying. He's saying, if that was true, if I'm a mean, ruling king, and you knew that about me, then if only out of fear, why wouldn't you do something? Like, if that's really what you think about me, seems to me that's even more reason to do something If you thought I was kind and gracious, that might be used as an excuse to do nothing, possibly. But you're like, oh, you're just mean and grumpy and you take things that aren't yours. So I just said it. And here's what he's saying. You're either lying to cover your laziness or you don't know me. But it's one of those two. Because to use that, that makes absolutely no sense. Now, we see this happen in some of our own cultural context currently, even today. Have you ever heard of someone or talked to someone um, who will talk about the idea maybe of heaven and hell and things like that, and you'll hear somebody sometimes say things like, well, if that's who God is, then I don't want anything to do with him. You ever heard that say before? Like, I mean, if, you, if that's you, I, with all due respect, that's a really dumb thing to think. But Because how do you win with that? Like, where's the win there? If that almighty God is going to judge based on these things, then I don't want anything to do with him. Okay, you don't want anything to do with him? Okay, then you'll just get judged. But it doesn't get you out of anything. It's not like up in heaven God's going to go, oh, you thought I was mean? Oh, okay. All right, well, pass. We'll, we'll just like let you go on through and let's go on to the next guy. That's not how it works. It's, it's like people even in our culture... He's not my president. Okay, don't pay taxes and see how it goes. It doesn't change the reality that you are in a place where you are under an absolute authority in that place. And so if someone was to say, man, if that's what God does, then I don't want anything to do with him. That will not serve you well in the end at all. And then here's the good news with that. Our king is not a mean man who reaps what he does not sow. In fact, our salvation, and this is really important to clarify because in going through this stuff, you could interpret this to say, okay, if I want to make it to heaven, I need to start doing a whole lot of good things. That is absolutely not true. We do not Make it into heaven based on how fruitful we've been or how many things we do. We make it into heaven for one reason and one reason only. We have put our faith in Jesus Christ, who lived perfectly, who died to pay the penalty for our sin, who rose again to defeat death, and who has said, If you put your faith in me, my righteousness will get you into heaven. That's how we get to heaven. It's not about the work that we do. But the reality is that a faith in Jesus and an understanding of who he is should affect the way that we live after that. But the reality here, here's this guy going, you're mean, and you reap what you did not sow. Our salvation is the exact opposite of that. We reap eternal life and salvation and the righteousness of Christ that we do not deserve, that Jesus earned on our behalf, and he just gives it to us. That's the reality of our salvation. It is a gift from God. That's the good news. And so if you're here and you're like, you've been one of those, it's like, I won't have that king rule over me. I urge you, if that's true, that's all the more reason to think about it. That's all the more reason to be sure, because there's no win in that I'll just ignore it. My tax, law, tax laws are ridiculous, and they take too much money, and I don't even like half the government stuff they're doing anymore, so I'm just, I just don't want anything to do with it. Fine, Jeff, but come April 15th, you're still going to have a bill, and there's nothing you can do about that. Ignoring it doesn't make it go away, because the rule is still there. Does that make sense, church? So it's important to understand that, that that's real. And if if you think it's harsh, that's probably even more motivation to do something. To make sure that you're not going to fall under the wrath of that harshness. But again, side note, he's not harsh. He's good. Amen, church? So this is his argument. He's saying, if that's the case, why didn't you just do something? And then verse 24. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But the one who has not, even what he has, will be taken away. This this is so... It's just common sense if you think about it. People that are going, wait, that's not fair. You already rewarded with a 10 and now you're taken from here and give to the other. Well, think about it. If you had an investment broker somewhere and you said, I'm going to take $1,000, I'm going to invest it and you gave 500 to this guy and 500 to this guy and this guy worked really hard and turned your 500 into 5,000 and this guy never even did anything with it, what would you do? You'd take it from that guy and go, well, I know this guy's going to be responsible with what I've entrusted him with, right? Wouldn't we all do that? So that, that's all, it's just common sense, just common sense of what he's saying here. And then there's the fun part, verse 27. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Oof. Okay. So there are three types of judgment represented here in this text. So let's deal with them. The first one is the judgment against the enemies of God. The ones that say, I will not have this man rule over me. Don't care. Want nothing to do with him. Let me urge you, please, if you're in this room and that's you, you need to think about this, man. You need to think about this. Because like I said, a rejection of the authority doesn't get you out from under the authority. And if it's real, and if the punishment that you would look at and go, well, if if God would send someone to hell, which I don't believe is true, but if God would allow someone to go to hell, then I want nothing to do with God. I would say that might be all the more reason to make sure that you're right with. So don't just ignore it because there's something you don't like. That doesn't necessarily change anything for you. And, and I'm saying this for your own good, not to bully or anything. I'm just saying, man, if you, th- if you think Christianity is closed-minded because Christians say it's the only way and you're like, I don't want anything to do with it. I'd say, man, if Christians think they're on- the only way, that's all the more reason to make sure they're not right. But consider it. Look at it. Contact it. Like, come sit with a pastor. Let's talk. S- talk to someone here in the church community. But, like, it's a big deal. And again, Jesus is telling this story because he wants them to understand a very real reality that there is a king, and he is coming back, and we will stand before him on that day. And that's not the side of the coin that you want to be a part of. So please consider that. That's the first one. The second one is the good servant. And not to give too much away already, right? But that's the one we want to be. Not the other. We want to be this one, right? So the good servant, who is the good servant in the text? The good servant understands that everything he has has been given to him by the king for the purpose of stewarding, investing, and using for the furtherance of the kingdom, knowing that the king is returning again one day. Let me repeat that one more time. The good servant knows that everything he has is a gift from the king given to him for the purpose of investing for the kingdom, knowing that the king will return again one day. So what does that mean for us today? Well, money's the obvious one right out the gate, right? He's using money in the parable. So obviously money is a part of that. What do we do with our money? It's a big deal. I mean, I I was thinking about it like, man, I shake and tremble about standing before the tax guy. That's ridiculous. I mean, think about this, guys, because it'd be really easy. We could go, well, I don't have that much money. I'm not wealthy and all this kind of stuff. But that's not the point. Like, in eternity, it could be said of us as we stand before God, probably of every single person in this room, that we were in the one point, or 0.1% of the most wealthiest people in the history of the world. That's what we've been entrusted in in our day and age. With resources like we have today, like the world has never seen before. And that's a, that is a gift. Like, the, people think the Bible's against rich people. It's not at all. The Bible actually teaches that wealth is a gift from God, but it does have a purpose, and we are held accountable for how we use it. So it's a big deal. And historically, I don't talk about money very much here. It always makes me uncomfortable. Um, And and one of my tendencies is very much like the kind of seeker-sensitive movement. Like we don't want to talk about things that are going to make people upset. And so I'll try to stay away from money because people don't like talking about that. And that's even my own sinfulness of like wanting people to think well of me and not think bad of me. But the reality is this. One day we will stand before God, and we will give account about how we use the resources we've been given, and money's like the first one on the list, so it probably shouldn't be ignored. But there's more. Family, like, what do we do with our family? What do we do with our kids? Like, the Bible teaches us that the kids really aren't our own. They're God's kids that we're babysitting, and that our job is to raise them in the kingdom of God. Or, or husbands and wives, that's not just your wife, that's God's daughter. It's not just your husband, that's God's son. And like husbands, think of how like the book of Solomon talks about it's the responsibility of the husband to like make the, make, make the, the woman bloom like a flower and thuri- uh, uh, flourish and thrive. So that's, that's what we're going to be accountable to. That's stuff that we have to think about on that day when we stand before God. How, a, your wife is a gift. Your husband is a gift. Your children are gifts. Your friendships are gifts. The friends that you have aren't given to you just so that life becomes more enjoyable, though good friends tend to make life more enjoyable. It might be that you have that friend because it's your responsibility to lead them to the kingdom of God, that it's not about you, it's about them and ultimately about Him. So what about your friendships? What about your job, the career that you have? Is that just a means to an end so that you can retire and have an awesome paycheck at the end and travel around? Or is it this is a place of influence that God's given you that you can lead people towards the kingdom of God? What about just your time? Like just our time, You guys know, we've talked about him a couple weeks ago and prayed, my friend Peter John, he's the pastor up at Applegate Christian Fellowship. He's on hospice right now with cancer. I don't know if any of you have seen some of his Facebook posts and things like that. He talks a lot about how he looks at spending time now knowing that he might just have weeks left. And it looks pretty different than probably what we would think earlier in our lives. Like, what what would we think? Like, if if we really thought you had a week or two left, how would we orient our time? What would we do with it? You're guilt-tripping me, Jeff. No, I'm not. I'm calling you to think. I'm calling you to have a count. I'm calling you to make sure. Everything, the health we have, everything we have is a gift from God given us for the purpose of furthering the kingdom of God. And in all of those things, there are rewards waiting for us on the other side of this world that we do not want to miss out on. That's why the Bible says things like, why are you spending so much time investing in things that moth will eat and rust will corrode, phones that will be outdated next week, all the, why do you, why do you make that your focus in everything instead of understanding the reality of what is waiting for you? This is what the good servant thinks about. And it's hard to think about that all the time, church, it is, amen, it is. But when we come across this in the scripture, like, you can either write it off and go, I don't want the guilt trip today, or you can go, maybe God's tapping me on the shoulder this morning. And maybe I should think about that. And then there's the wicked servant. This is the harder one, the scarier one. And here's why it's scary. The wicked servant here is attached to the king through the family of faith. But has no desire to follow or serve him. So think about that. The wicked servant, he's, he's separate from those who are just straight up rejecting him. He's on the team, you might say. He's in the household, you might say, or whatever word you want to use for that. He's attached to the king. But he has no real desire to actually follow him, to serve him, to obey him, to do any of that kind of stuff. That's not a motive or a concern at all. Now, the classic biblical example of this is the one that most of us who grew up in the church, more than anything, want to absolutely say, well, this can't possibly represent me at all, and that's Judas. Judas Iscariot. He was one of the apostles. Think about it. He's in the room right now. He's hearing this teaching from Jesus at this very moment. When Jesus sent the apostles out two by two, did Judas go? Yeah. When Jesus sent the apostles out to go do miracles, to cast out demons, to do all these amazing great works all over the place, did Judas go? Yeah. And he did it. And from what we understand, probably did a really good job. And the reason we can say that is because he's the treasurer among them. He's the guy that held the money. That's a position of honor and trust that you earn. But what do we know about him? He's connected to the king, but his heart had nothing to do with it. He, he was using Jesus to make money, pilfering money out of the bag when he could and all this stuff. That was all he was interested in. So much so that when Jesus does get to the kingdom... And Jesus doesn't assume the throne when he gets into Jerusalem, I mean. and He just says, no, I'm not here to assume the throne. I'm here to die. Judas finally gets so frustrated when they get to Jerusalem. He goes, okay, fine, forget it. And he sells Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. That's what he was after. This is the wicked servant right here. Even In the Last Supper, when all the disciples are around Jesus, look at the words that the different disciples use to talk about Jesus. He's like, do you love me? Do you love me? And they're like... Lord, we love you. Lord, we love you. Lord, we love you. Judas, Rabbi, of course I do. It's a really different approach. Oh, I respect him. I honor him. He's just not my king. And I'm not trying to follow him. Is that you? Is that us? Is that me? Like pulling Jesus around like a dog on a leash? keeping him in the back seat of the car, so I've got him nearby and he's handy, but no way does he get to drive. Like, is that us? And and in the church, historically, we tend to look at sins of commission. So what that means is the stuff you do. Oh, he cheated on his wife, he's a sinner. Oh, he's doing drugs, he's a sinner. The things that you do. But the Bible actually emphasizes at least as much sins of omission, the things that we don't do, the things that we ignore. And think, think about how terrifying the teachings of Jesus are leading up to this point, if you really think about this. Think about it. Remember, he tells the story of the two people who go into the temple to pray and worship, and there's the one, Lord, thank you that I'm not like that guy over there, Because I give, I tithe, I pray, I follow all the commandments. I do this, I do this, I do this, I do this. And what is Jesus' message? You are lost. The religious leaders... You guys tithe of all of this stuff. You give, you ring the bells to get all the attention when you go do all of these things. But inside, you're corrupt and decaying because your heart is far from me. You quote scripture thinking that just by the quoting of the scriptures, that the words of life you have, and you have no idea you're even condemned by your own words when you say them because your heart is nowhere near me. You're doing all the churchy stuff and you are lost. And over and over and over, he points out to the religious elite that the rest of us would have looked at and said, well, if anyone's safe, they are. And he says, you're lost. You're lost. You're lost. And half of you don't even realize it and see it. So where are we? Like, we need to think about that, church, with fear and trembling. We need to think about that. We need to take account. We need to understand the direction that we're going. We need to know our own proclivity as humans is to get off track. And there's times to go, nope, I got to straighten the ship here because I'm off We need to know that the reality is is that slides into liberalism, and I don't mean politically, slides into sin, slides into those things, go a little step at a time, a little step at a time, a little step at a time till you're so far away. And what we need sometimes is the wake-up call so that we make the giant big jump to go, no, this is where I'm supposed to be. And the scripture calls us to do this all the time. So then how do we know? How do we know where we're at? I'll give you four questions that I've held onto for a long, long time. I actually found them just this week as I was looking from it. That that someone else, these are not my ideas. Um, They're ones that have at times blessed me and at other times haunted me. Let me give you four questions. Here's the first one Are you stuck in habitual patterns of sin? Now, I don't mean like, do you struggle with things? Uh, If you're in this room and you're the one that, like, I don't ever struggle with anything, like, with all due respect, I don't know that I trust you. (laughs) That just seems, like, unbelievably impossible to me. I'm not sure how I feel about that. Oh, I don't struggle with anything. I'm like, I don't really see that in the Bible. Paul struggled. But I'm talking about that willful, intentional. Now, Now, listen, again, our salvation is not determined by what we do or don't do. That is really important to clarify. Our salvation is by grace in Jesus. But there are red flags that we can look at and go, where am I? Markers, waypoints to try to decide what's going on here. And look, someone in habitual sin, there can be all sorts of reasons why you end up there. There can be genetic issues or abuse that you went through as a kid or who knows what you've gone through that helped lead you to that place. That's not the thing that I'm judging. What I'm saying is it may not be a salvation issue, but it's a red flag. And it's something we should look at. Question two, do you seek a righteous life? Here's what I mean by that. Like, when you read the Word, if you read the Word, like, are you, do you pursue it? You know what I mean? Like, do you read it as a, oh, I got my thing done for the day that I'm supposed to do, and I feel like I checked off my Christian box, and whew, that feels good, like getting a workout done in the morning. Now I don't have to worry about the rest of the day. Or, or do you read it and go like, man, I need to pursue this. Or, or even more than the things, the God it writes about. Like, do you pursue that? Is that a desire? I don't, not how perfect you are at it, but is that a goal in your life? Number three, do you love others? First John says that we can know that we've passed from death to life by our love for other people. And that's a pretty easy one to really be honest with yourself about and take stock on. Like, are the people around you, like, do they just exist to make your life better? Is that the way that you see people? Your wife and your kids exist to serve you. Your husband and kids exist to serve you. Your co-workers just exist to serve you. All these things to prop up your own kingdom. Or do you look at it from the other way and go, Man, my calling in life is to love them and to serve them as Christ loved me. Completely different kind of thing. The regenerate regenerate people, the picture of, re- of regeneration that we see in the scriptures, regenerate people are not narcissistic, self absorbed me monsters. They're, they're people whose hearts have been changed. And they desire the same love for other people that Christ had for them. That's what we're supposed to grow in. So again, I'm not saying that if you're not doing that perfectly, you're not saved. Christ saves us alone. But it's a marker. It's something to pay attention to, to go, maybe this isn't right. Maybe something's wrong here. And the last one is this. Um, wh- just where are your affections? It's, it's a giant sweeping term, I know. But, but maybe you could just say, are there any there for God? <laughs> maybe a simple way of saying it. Um, There's a a verse in 1 John, 1 John 2.15 says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, let me clarify. I love fly fishing. I love snowboarding. I love Carolina basketball games. I love that stuff, right? But is there like an affection for God you know what I mean? Like, what what is it that you live for? What determines how you'll spend your time and all your money and all of those things? If all of those things exist pr- primarily or first for the kingdom of God, then think about that. And if you have affections for God, where, where does that rank on the list? Like, is, Are there things that need to be adjusted? Because new life in Jesus should awaken affections in us for Him. And if those aren't there, Man, I, I would encourage you to talk to somebody about that, starting with God himself and going, man, what do I, am I off track here? Have other things buried my affection for God because now I'm living for things that could never be God? What, what, where am I at? And now listen, church, hear me. How, this is the reality thing that he's trying to get across to them and to us. Because in this very story, when you fast forward into the next story, And this doesn't get you off the hook for church attendance next week, but I'm going to give something away real quick, all right? It's the triumphant entry. Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and you have these groups of people that are there. One group of people are the disciples that have been with him all the time. And they're singing, Hosanna, you are the king, you are the Lord. And they know this, they've been with him. Another group is these other followers, disciples, that it says that they're worshiping him because of these great works that he's done. He's done amazing things, he's a good guy to follow, you will do well if you follow him. He healed my sister, I'm going to follow this guy around. And then the third group is the religious leaders that are saying, tell everybody to stop this singing because in these songs they're calling you God. And Jesus goes, Listen, man, if I, if I told them to stop singing, even the rocks here on the mountain will start crying out, and that might freak some people out, so let's just leave things alone. But then what happens? He turns around, he looks at the city of Jerusalem, and those of you that know say it, what is it he starts doing? What does he do? He starts to weep. Why? He says, if you had just known, if you had just Realized who I am, if you just understood the danger and destruction that you're headed for. Because I warned you, you're, the prophets warned you, the scriptures warned you of all of these things. And look, he's not this mean, cruel dictator. He's he wants good for them, he wants them to live. And he knows, and history records this was true. 40 years later, 40 years later, Rome comes into town and levels this city, wipes it out. And he's looking at this city with a broken heart, looking at them going, I wish you knew the reality of the situation that you're in. Because you're just walking around right now oblivious to it as if that day's not coming. And it breaks his heart. And today, just today, in the next 24 hours, A hundred and fifty one thousand six hundred people will die statistically. A hundred and fifty one thousand six hundred people will die. It's like one person every like twelve seconds will die. And we never think it's us. We just always assume that we have more time. And we don't live with an understanding of the reality of how fast something can change in a heartbeat and how the next thing we know it can be tax day and it's too late and we never did anything about it. And it is the grace of God that in his word, even in texts that are hard, that make us uh, wrestle, it is the grace of God calling us to wrestle. Because he wants us to do well. He longs for the day that he stands in front of us and says, well done, good and faithful servant. You will not believe what I have for you. Come here. That's reality. And the other reality is that it's very possible, if not likely, that someone in this room or some people in this room won't be here with us this time next year. And I don't mean because you left and went to another church. And so what do we do? How do we live? Like, we, that's got to matter, right? But Here's the good news. Can I give you some good news now at the end? Here's the good news. Our salvation is not determined by how well we're doing or how well we do over the next however long. Our salvation has been made secure because Jesus Christ did it perfectly. He, he's, he's, you're, you're not fighting to get into heaven if you've put your faith in Jesus. Now you may be the guy that gets in through the skin of your teeth with no reward to show for it, but it's still good to get in and, and not end up the wicked servant. And people argue, well, the wicked servant, though, he still got in. He just didn't get any reward. In Matthew's account, it says they cast the wicked servant out to the place where there was darkness, weeping, and gnashing of teeth. Not totally sure what all that is. It sounds bad to me. But the good news is this. Your salvation has been secured by Jesus Christ if you'll put your faith in him. Number two, your failures have all been dealt with on the cross. The ones that even right now in your own heart, because some of you already know the things you need to deal with, that thing has already been dealt with on the cross of Jesus Christ. I love what Pastor Mitch said last week when he was teaching and he was talking about that, that idea about living and the understanding of faith and what Jesus has done in the year to come. And he was saying, start living in the understanding that that's true and stop living in guilt trying to put Jesus back on the cross as if, as if that hasn't been paid for already that your failures have been covered by Jesus Christ and his death and sacrifice on the cross. And then here's, this is so awesome. Even if you've left your first love, he never left you. Ever. He loves you. He's not sitting back going, get it together, Jeff. He's pleading. Come on. You can do this. You won't believe what's coming, Jeff. And I want you to, I just want you to know this. It's a big deal. Live this way, follow this way. And his words right now, even if they're hard to hear, even if we feel conviction, it is a grace. Because what is coming is infinitely more real than what we see here today. It is a grace from God that you somehow, in all the places you could have been, You ended up right here this morning under this specific text on a message I didn't even want to give, hearing your Lord and Savior say, hey, take account, because this is a really big deal, and I want you to thrive. I came that you might have life and life more abundantly. Think about these things. And so for us, we need to do what Moses wrote in Psalms. Look at that. We got the text for this. Psalm 90 verse 12 says this, so teach us to number our days. That we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Like, teach me to live knowing I only have so much time left. And teach me, Lord, how to take that seriously and to pursue wisdom in you so that I don't have to worry and be in fear for what that day will come. Because look at what 1 John 2.28 says. 1 John 2.28, And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. That's the goal. That's the goal. Well done, good and faithful servant. To be able to stand before God and be like, man, I failed, but I gave it my all, and I'm just so thankful to be here, and I just, my faith and trust was in you all along, but not to go, oh, I just need more time, I just want more time, Why? if I could just have two weeks, if I could, if I could just go back and have just two more weeks, if I could just have that, and you know, I was thinking about that this week, it reminds me of that story where Lazarus and the rich man, remember that story? Lazarus, who's poor, ends up in heaven. The rich man who ignored God all his life ends up going to hell. And he says, he says Abraham, at least let me go back and just appear to my sons so that they can know it's real. And the response was, they have Moses and the prophets. If they didn't listen to them, they're not going to listen to you either. And I think about that, too. If I just had more time, and even right now, I mean, I'm 46 now. I got, I've had 46 years. I've had 46 years. And I don't know how many more I'm going to get. But I know this, I know that even this week, the Lord was like, you abide in me, dude. Pursue. Don't with guilt and shame go, I messed up, now i got to go beat myself up till I've sufficiently paid penance. No, Jesus took the beating. There's no beating. But you just go, now I want to pursue. I want to spend time with you. I want to learn of you. I want to draw near to you. I want to follow you. I want to take stock of the different things that I am in my life, and I want to make sure that the years that I have count so that I can hear those beautiful words, well done, good and faithful servant. Amen. We're gonna open up the communion tables now. Sam's gonna close this in another song, and I just want you to give you opportunity to just do a little bit of that business with the Lord. To just go before him and say, okay, some of you already know. You're like, oh, I'm already confessing. I know what I need to do. Awesome. And some of you, killing it. Like I said, great. Man, come have a meal and say, thank you, Jesus, for your grace. But man, just take an opportunity just what if, what if the reality is, is that, what if this was like the last time you hear that? This was God's last warning to you to say, look, man, your time's running out. Please know this is real. And what if this was the last time you're actually going to hear that here on earth? Like, what do you do with that? Go to the Lord. Remember at the communion table that, that your sins and your failures were covered by him. But also remember that he died for us and is our Lord, that we would follow him and serve him and work towards his kingdom, and that one day it is all so going to be worth it. And if you don't know Jesus, grab me, grab one of the other pastors, tap someone on the shoulder, and talk to us. It's a really, really big deal. Amen, church? So let's bow our heads and the communion table will be open as soon as we start singing. We're not going to sing very long, so take advantage of it if you want to come to the table, but just do business with the Lord. Father, we may you just move in this place this morning. May your spirit just continue to work. I pray, Lord, against guilt because guilt does not come from you, but conviction does. And so, Lord, if we've been convicted by your word this morning, if there's things that we know we need to take account of and and move forward, Lord, will you empower us by your Holy Spirit to pursue you in that way? And I pray that for some, Lord, this next moment right here would be a very pivotal moment in their history. We just commit this time to you in Jesus' name.